I often say like, oh, you know, I'm a leadership junkie. It's just because leadership drives culture. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Ken Blanchard. Leadership is not about you. It's about investing in the growth of others. Our guest today, Kevin Cruz, has established himself as an expert on leadership and how to use it to drive employee engagement. He is an entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, and top-rated keynote speaker who's dedicated to help leaders turn average groups into high-performing teams. Kevin's currently the founder and CEO of LeadX, an online learning platform that provides free leadership development for millions of people around the world. Kevin, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks, Bob. Great to see you again. Yeah, I was saying it's been a while, uh, but it's been a pandemic since we spoke uh, last. <laughs> a lot of pandemic under the bridge. Yeah, ho- hopefully. <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're all hoping that. So uh, you, you have a great story of uh, perseverance from your early days as an entrepreneur, which I, I guess is repetitive uh, for a lot of people. What, what was your first business and, and how, did you, how did you go about starting it? Well, the very first business was literally the day I graduated college. I started a business, uh, but I didn't have any money. So I found, this is going way back, uh, subleased a one-room office out of an accounting firm. And yeah. I secretly slept on the floor for a year. So I lived there and worked there and uh, would get up super early before anyone would arrive for work. And I'd get out of there so they wouldn't know I was actually sleeping there. And uh, I'd go shower at the YMCA, come back, start the day, and uh, did that for a year before crashing and burning and and shutting that down. That was the first one. Um, and what was that business? It was uh, <laughs> very unfocused. So at the time, we were doing uh, computer games. You know, we created the very first prices right for personal computers. You know, back in the uh, early '90s, and tried to. Uh, it was early days of like Dell and knockoff clones. We tried to do move into hardware and it just didn't work. I mean, I was 21, 22, really didn't know what I was doing and and had no you know backing or funding. So that one didn't work out. But you know, a year later, I started another one and uh, tried it all over again. So was it clear to you from an early age that that you were not gonna be a good employee for other people? I mean, were you on the sort of creative disruptive spectrum in school or otherwise? <laughs> well, uh, without dragging the story out too long, what happened was uh, my father had an, dreams to be an entrepreneur, dreams to be, you know, independently wealthy. And, you know, he always had these, you know, independently different cra- wealthy and entrepreneur are not necessarily, <laughs> that may not be the path. Well, we can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point. There's possibly yeah. much easier ways. But, but my father, he finally had a lot of crazy schemes. He finally um, got a business that went went bankrupt. And we, we literally right. lost our house and everything. And I was about, I don't know, I think it was 10 years old, playing catch on the front yard lawn with a friend. And a scary bill collector dude shows up looking for my dad who wasn't home. And uh, he, this guy gave me a card. And he's like, hey, you tell your dad he's got to call me you know, when he gets there. And when I asked my dad about it that night, he, uh, like, I knew things were bad. I just didn't know how bad. And like, he looks at the card, he just puts it down. Doesn't say anything I'm like dad, Who's that guy? He says, Oh, he wants money. He, he's looking for money. I said, well, aren't, aren't you scared? Like, aren't you going to call him back? 
And he says, I'm not going to call them back. I got nothing left they can take from me. And literally, we lost our house. He lost his truck. Like, boom, he was done. And that night, I still have somewhere here on my desk. My, I wrote my journal that night. I said, and it sounds kind of funny as an adult now, but I said, I don't care what it takes, but when I grow up, I'm going to be rich. And it wasn't about like, oh, I want a Corvette or something like, a, you know, it wasn't like that. It was like, I don't want some scary guy to come take my house away. And so in my mind, now I don't, <laughs> I had one therapist that said, wait a minute, you, you lived through that experience and you wanted to become an entrepreneur. Like, well, I was actually going to comment on that. <laughs> I, I have found so many uh, like opposite situations. So my, my, like my mom and my dad only had one job, like their entire careers and my brother, sister, and I all ran our own businesses. Likewise, wow. I, I have seen a lot of people who had parents go through, you know, in the 80s, were not, you know, was this is, we've seen a weird era in the last 10 years. We're much more success than failure, much more publicized. Right. But, you know, a lot of people lost their shirt. Their manufacturing went out of, you know, people were in the shoe business in New England. Oh, yeah. all, it all just went overseas overnight. And I found like those people went into like partner track like career pension roles. Like a lot of them were, were after all those up and downs, they actually, they, they went straight to careers that were about tenure and stability. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think there's, there could, there's probably, you know, some, some cycles, some pendulum here. And, you know, this was seventies, you know, eighties, I was lower middle-class. So like, I literally never met a doctor, a dentist, an accountant, uh, a lawyer, until adult life, you know, as, as like just in the community. Yeah. So if those people had been in my world, I might've been like, oh, I want to be a lawyer like Alan across the street and drive a BMW. But I didn't have that as a model. Yeah. So I had small business and salespeople and, and painters and house builders. That was my relatives and, and neighbors. Yeah. When that thing happened to my dad, my mind, for whatever reasons, like I, I am going to do whatever it takes to make a lot of money. And then I became the first kid in my extended family, kind of worked my way through college, state college. And somehow, even I didn't really know what the plan was going to be. But to your point, I didn't think like, oh, I want to go sell insurance or I want to go work in a restaurant or I want to like, there was no traditional career path. I was into computers, but I wasn't a computer genius. Yeah. And so it, for, it was sort of like, all right, well, let me start a business in this hot new, and it was a fun time, you know, the dawn of personal computers, like, let me get into this area, but I didn't really have a plan and it. And yeah. it <laughs> so it didn't really work out either for the first couple of attempts. <laughs> have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right. Well, there are a couple of things. I also think, again, I think it highlights, look, I always say that entrepreneurship is sexy through the rear view mirror. Like when someone has an exit or when someone, whatever, then everyone comes around for a piece and they say, oh, like person's really like, they just don't see the, right. all the near death, all the people's parents who went bankrupt and, you know, right. I, people like the upside of risk reward, but they don't actually see the risk that a lot of people lose everything, you know, starting their businesses. And I, I still have never seen, I've never seen an employee chip in their salary, you know, right. to cover an employer's losses, uh, right. you know, in, in a business. Um, so first business failed, then what? <laughs> uh, I took a year off to pay off my $10,000 of credit card debt. Um, yeah. and, started another business, which it didn't really fail, but I had a partner. And because I was immature, inexperienced with how to have direct conversations, we decided to part ways after a year. So that ended business number two. Business number three, that's the one that first stuck and it was small, but after so you five, had no money, right? If I'm doing the math here, it's not like you're coming. No in money. The, yeah, yeah. I was 20. At that point, I was 23, 24, maybe, maybe 25, had no money. And decided to get into the the corporate training business doing computer-based training. So this is back in early 90s, still, mid-90s, I guess. And after five years, it was, you know, sold it for a couple million dollars, which again at age 30. So looking back, I was foolish to sell. And I, you know, like sure, a million dollars is a lot of money, but like it was that scarcity mindset. I was I got into business for the wrong reason and I sold for the wrong reason. Yeah. And then of course you quickly realize like okay, well, I'm 30 years old and after taxes and everything else, I really don't actually have that much money. Right. So what's the next business? And that was the next one got, got bigger, you know, after that. And I, and I assumed those, you, the, the learnings were from all the failures that you, you applied to the last, finally you put them all together. And, yeah. And all the, the learnings helped and that the company that acquired mine, um, you know, I then had partners who were older and more experienced yeah. and that's when we went out and got venture capital. And that, that, I mean, those became my mentors. I mean, Rudy yeah. Carson was the CEO and to this day, he's one of my closest business advisors. Bill Erickson was a senior consultant at Gallup. He's the one that then taught me about leadership and employee engagement right. and selection, like all that voodoo. Like that was a real gift. Those guys mentored me when I was like from 30 to 35 is when I really put it together. And I know during that time, I think you developed a real clear leadership philosophy or just the importance of leadership. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what those components were? Yeah, it, it was it was definitely at that time where 
suddenly I learned about, okay, <laughs> I mean, it sounds so obvious, but um, it's all, it really is all about culture. You know, culture is more important than the strategy and everything else. Strategy for lunch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, employee engagement, how people feel about work, you know, really is going to drive like, are they calling out sick or showing up and giving it their all? Are they coming up with ideas or are they shirking, you know, and that, you know, the big aha to me was, CEO can do whatever she wants. You can have whatever values and all these kinds of things, but it's the manager is really the lens for all that. 70% of how we feel about work is based on the relationship with the manager, behaviors of the managers. And so from that time at Conexa, and then later, you know, doing, and we still are doing a, uh, original research in this area. It's like, what are the manager drivers that, that drive culture? And I know you're familiar with some of my earlier work where for decades, growth, recognition, and trust, you know, were the three big drivers. And and as a manager, I do like really live this, like, how am I making sure my team members are are growing in their careers? And I spend a lot of time with them on, on growth. Am I showing recognition and appreciation? Do we have a culture of trust and, and integrity? But Bob, we redid every couple of years, we redo that survey. And Post pandemic, it has shifted a little bit, and so now. So, who are you surveying? Is is it a broad spectrum of businesses? Yeah, yeah, okay, exactly. So, um, thousands of managers uh, in North America is the base, and and we've been running you know this survey for a lot of years now, and right now by far, um, what what we call future vision, what I call future vision, is the number one driver, and that just means the manager is is you know painting a, a compelling, motivating picture of the future. Well, it makes sense. Like <laughs> more than ever before pandemic yeah. hits, there's yeah. all anything, this uncertainty. Anything but the, the current, let's talk about the future, right? Yeah, right. Well, that that's right. It's like, okay, I always was hoping to have a better future, but when I don't know if like, we're going to have a job, we don't know where we're going to work. We don't know what the industry right. is going to do. We don't know what the rules are going to be for vaccines, whatever it is. The more certainty we can bring in that, Hey, Yes, we don't know all these things and we have all these challenges, but here's where we're going. Here's the plan that's going to get there. And I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm also not going to hold back. You know, it's like, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. And this is the plan to get there. The more I can paint that motivating, clear future state, the better. So that's actually the new number one. It's not that growth recognition and trust aren't important. They're up there. They're still top five or eight. Um, Psychological safety is now number two in our most recent you know, research, you know, and that's just feeling like you can be yourself and share yeah. yourself and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I just became a junkie. It's, I often say like, oh, you know, uh, I'm a leadership junkie. It's just because leadership drives culture. And so I'm fascinated by behavior and culture drives yeah. good outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it also drives mutually beneficial outcomes, right? Uh, you can get good outcomes, uh, I think, in the short term by burning through people. You can decide that that's the type of business you want to run or or get outcomes by growing people with the business, right? Yeah, that's right. It's long-term focus. And, and Bob, for a while, again, when I was younger and dumber, I was focused on the employee engagement for what it was getting me. It was making me money, right? Yeah. It was helping me attract great talent, you know, employee brand. And then it was a late at night at a end of the year you know, holiday party. And Becky comes up to me and she was the, the wife of someone who reported to me. And she says, oh, she's had a couple of drinks. <laughs> it's like, before we go, I just want to thank you. I'm like, oh no, this party's great. And, you know, your, your husband, Sean does so much as, no, 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 I'm not thanking you for the party. 
I'm thanking you for making my marriage better. And I'm like, what? Like, I didn't know anything about her marriage. And she said, before Sean joined your team, came home miserable and, you know, life was miserable. I didn't want to talk to him. He was such a grump. Once he joined your team, and this sounds like a movie line, but I'm not making it up. She says, he went back to being the man I married. And that really like, you know, that touches me now, you know, all these years later. And it was like, whoa, like all this make people happy at work stuff <laughs> actually is making them better at home. Well, to me, it's the, it's the win-win. There aren't a lot of win-wins in life, but I think this ties to a lot of what I've written about in capacity building. Like if you work on making people better, happier, more engaged, more productive, uh, you know, inside of work, outside of work, these are universal things. Like right. someone's not exhausted I would say someone is not exhausted and terrible at time management at home and walks into work and is really good at time management and is, has a lot of energy. So th- these are things like that they have holistic impacts across business and outside business. Yeah. And that's what you've, you've talked about for a long time. Like, you know, there's no, there really is no work-life balance. There's no work-life separation. Even yeah. again, before it wasn't that true. It really You'll walk in as Clark Kent and, right. and, and into Superman. And they, it's all the same. It's all so the same. I mean, and I think that's an exact point where if, if whatever his name is, is just happier right. and more engaged and less stressed out, then hopefully, like that's a you know they associate that with a job. I, I have a question in the trust. Yeah. In, as you do these surveys, one thing that has occurred to me is that like I think historically, employees were probably less trustful of managers and leaders. What's always interesting to me though is they're all just people. Yeah. Right. We put these personas on them, but like I understand there's cultures in company, but like again, your manager is another human being in <laughs> right. person. Like they don't have any like. But people tend to associate them with the company or otherwise when that's how then they think of their manager. It's it's just a very yeah. interesting thing. So I think employees, you know, historically maybe lower level of trust, you know, with the companies. Now you're in this time of like massive employee power, right? right? And empowerment. Yes. You know, can leave any day, great resignation. Are you seeing that show up in the trust of how, like, whether there's a tr- more trust issues with that, that their people are just going to walk out on them any day, like that way? Or is that, have you not seen that in the data? No, um, I haven't seen it in the data. I mean, we generally will still see, by and large, like leaders who get good scores in some areas are getting good scores in almost all areas. And leaders yeah. who are getting poor scores in one area or get it, it's all areas, it's not just one thing. And then overall, in an organization, like the one that continues to come up, which is silly, is recognition and appreciation. It's the easiest no budget thing to do right. And that almost always comes up as like the lowest score. I do not feel recognized. I do not feel appreciated for what I'm what I'm doing here. Um, trust has not been dinged, you know, much in that level. Although, Bob, it's a whole maybe different conversation, but you just said something I'll make sure your listeners really hone in on. We are now in the age of like freelance mindset for employees. And I've seen it as I'm trying to recruit it. And like a friend of mine said, I was complaining about, I don't know, some salary, someone water something probably. And he's like, Kevin, he's like, this is like the modern day NBA. You know, it's like, it's the players league in the NBA. They got a five-year contract. Well, they don't like it. And I'm outside of Philadelphia. I say it's a gig mentality. It's a gig mentality, right. I don't like my boss or I don't like what they said. I'm just not going to show up for work for a year and force them to trade me. And the pendulum has swung so fast. It's never good when it's... Look, I think it's been way too much in the employer or manager bucket for a while. And now it's swung so fast. And look, when people get quick power, they tend to get a little 
braggy and arrogant in the same way that the company would did it. And now employee, you know, right. go to an interview and like, you tell me why I should work yep. at your company and stuff. And, and I, I think it's, there, there's some dangers there. Like I, one of the, and I'm, I wonder if you agree with this. Like I, I I've shared this story. I was on a panel on company culture would expect for, you know, 2022, I think it was. And we were around and they said, what do you think is big trend for next year? It was after my hybrid workbook. And I said, look, I, I think flexibility is going to continue to be a number one thing that employers are going to be looking for going forward. And then someone else went. And then a woman on the panel said, you know, what I see is employees want to work where they want on what they want and how they want. And I just, I couldn't leave that alone. <laughs> and you've regretted it ever since. <laughs> what, what, no, and I, like, no, I don't. I'd say the same thing. And I was like, look, I, I mean, to me, that said like someone who, who doesn't have to lead an organization or team. I was like, if that's what they want to do, really, then they should go run their own business. Like that is not a mentality that works in an organization. It doesn't work on a team, right? Mike Krzyzewski is not going to take a guy who comes on his team as like, look, I just want to freaking shoot the lights right. out and do what I want right, to do right. and pass what I want to pass. Like, no way he's going to like being part of a team. And to your point before vision, right. like it requires some sacrifice. Yeah. Like, you know, you're going to have a proposal on a Sunday. I mean, this is part of a team. It can't all be about what you want when you want it. So I, I, I agree with that power, but I think it has real cultural implications. And I think if you want to be a free agent and that's fine, you know, you can do that and you can come in and name your price and work projects. But there is like in anything, there is a, there are sacrifices that you need to make to be part of a team. Maybe it is the organizations and leaders challenges you're saying to make it make it really clear what the benefits and the vision of that team are. But I, I, I am firmly against this, like the, the thing you can build a high performance company with everyone just trying to self-optimize their situation. Yeah. And I think though, I think the reality is, I mean, most organizations are not like, it makes a great headline. Oh, everybody just does what they yeah. want around here. The reality is, I mean, unless you're a super, super wealthy tech company and you've got some R&D group or something, you know, people are usually accountable for some amount of stuff. I talk about yeah. internally to my team members, I'm going to call it the ice triangle. You know, I, I, I draw it out and it's like investors, customers, and employees. And long-term, we need to balance those. Yes, I want empowered, happy, engaged, you know, employees, but we also have to balance that with customer focus, customer service, and whoever's investing in the company needs to get a return. You know, if any one of those is out of balance, long term it's going to fall apart. And um, so we'll we'll see. But certainly the power is in the talent by a long shot right now. I mean, they're a lot of them are setting terms, but what's going to happen then? You know, a couple of years from now, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, and I, I think it's going to even out quickly. I think a few rate hikes yeah. and, and yeah. you know, it, it, it'll it change quickly. So another thing uh, I'm curious, like I, one thing that's pretty interesting that we have found is that if you're trying to be an organization that builds people up, promotes them, you have a lot of new managers, turns out new managers need are not very good at managing. They haven't done it. They haven't done it before. And actually you're changing their reward center from being an individual contributor to getting credit for the performance of your team, not what you do. And they end up micromanaging. It's just a very common thing. So what, from a leadership standpoint, what do you think uh, some of the biggest challenges people have when when they're learning to lead? Yeah, and, and you described it well, and that's kind of a big part of the, the origin of LeadX is like there's all these frontline first-time managers who really don't receive 
training or training that sticks. Maybe they go to a boot camp for a couple of days or something, but it doesn't really stick. Yeah. And um, there's two things that come to mind right away. I mean, the classic one, as you described, is wow, you know, Bob, we're promoting you because you're such a superstar individual contributor. You solve problems, you work hard, you put out fires, you're successful. Now you're going to be a manager of this team. And it's hard to go from being the superhero where you're getting rewarded for doing all that yourself. And now you're saying, you know what? I'm stepping back. I've got to make everybody else superheroes. Like now I've got to get results through other people. That's very difficult. Right. All the blame, none of the credit. All the blame, very none of the credit. Yeah. Very different thing. Doesn't always feel good. But I'll tell you a common one, a little bit different. And it's certainly one that I suffered from. I feel a little bit better because um, Ken Blanchard and John Maxwell both told me that they suffered from this too. So I'm in, I'm in good company. Yeah. Uh, it was this need to be liked, you know, so Early when I was in my 30s and you know 20s, I didn't know about management, but I was a nice guy. I was a casual, you know, dress casual. Yeah. No, no one's punching their time clock kind of thing. And I was popular. I was a popular boss. What I didn't realize was it's okay to want. Everybody wants to be liked, but the need to be liked, the need to be liked by everyone as a leader. Well, the downside is. I wasn't giving people tough feedback, right? So I was withholding feedback. Did you not? You just didn't hold people accountable? I wouldn't hold people accountable. Yeah. I would just delay things. Um, decisions, even if they weren't that important, everything had to be consensus. I didn't want one out of the 10 people on the team to be upset with it. So it would take me nine months to make a simple decision. So this is a problem. And when once you realize, though, that you've like, oh, yeah, I do kind of have this need to be liked, and that's not what I'm being paid for. And it's still, it's a personality thing. So, I mean, it's still in me, but I've replaced this need to be liked with a bigger need to lead right. You know, it's more important for me to realize like, okay, I'm trying to build something. We're all trying to achieve this thing together. And back Back to the mission, back to the mission, failure, Yeah, failure to hold people accountable means we're not going to get this really cool, big thing done. Right. It it sounds cliched, but the few times where I've had really tough conversations, really given people tough feedback or even let people go in almost every instance, it's a turning point for the better for everybody. It just works out better. Like you want tough conversations. You want a team that is okay having these tough conversations. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a classic thing. I think new managers also, they, they don't want to rock the boat. They want everyone to be, to like them. And they might be withholding, you know, feedback and slow rolling decisions, even when they shouldn't. That's a good one. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash elevate. I want to dive into an area I know I think you and I share a similar passion around and that's sort of values. Right. Um, so in the organizations that you've led, how have sort of values dictated behavior versus rules and systems? <laughs> yeah. And so that's the the latest book, you know, Great Leaders Have No Rules, which I don't like the title. It should have been like, they make no rules because people yeah. think I'm talking about, oh, anybody can do anything. That's not what we're saying. And yeah. the origin of that that title in the first chapter, when I sold my company to uh, what became Conexa, the CEO is acquiring my company, gives me this pep talk, Bob. He's like, Kevin, you know, you're going to be a partner here uh, and everybody gets the same vote. You and I are going to build this company together and everything's great. <laughs> I felt all empowered, motivated, like an equal. And about a month in, I submitted an expense report and it got kicked back. It, well, it, it got kicked back with the check, but the check was short by like $3 or something. Like, oh, that's weird. I just, I must've filled it out wrong. So the CFO, Don, like emailing him, Don, what's wrong with, uh, you know, did I do my expense report wrong? He says, no, uh, we don't reimburse for post-it notes. So apparently I had bought post-it notes, tried to get my money back for it. We don't reimburse. I said, why? And he says, wasteful expense. And so the CEO pumps me up as like, whoa, you're an equal, you're a partner. We're going to do this together, equal vote. And I can't even get reimbursed. I can't. So was actually, was that on like page 36-5 of the rule book? Like, was that like, where did that, well, did they it, literally have something that said that? They, they literally had that rule, but it wasn't even written down. <laughs> okay. And so now I, of course, go crazy and being the new guy, I go and confront Rudy and say, Rudy, this is, and someone else, they tried to expense, like they went out to a business dinner and they had a beer and they took the $2 off for the beer. You know, he could have bought like a $4 milkshake, but not a $2 beer. It just didn't make sense. Yeah. So to Rudy's credit, he's like, I didn't know this was freaking people out and people were getting mad. He's like, it was a symbol of frugality. And he says, here's what I use. He said, people scribble on post-it notes and they take phone messages. And, and he had, <laughs> he still does this scrap paper that like, instead of throwing it away, he would rip it into pieces. So the value is like, don't be wasteful. Don't be wasteful. Right. And so this was what yeah. he was trying to use as like, you don't need sticky pieces of paper and, and people waste and they're expensive. But he never explained it. He never explained that. it. Yeah. And so this, <laughs> this came back. And so- to Rudy's credit, he said, okay, the no post-it rule is abolished. Okay, I didn't realize that was a bummer. And to my credit, I never tried to buy post-it notes again. Because once because you knew that it was really important to him. It was a value. And so yeah, it was a and, value. And one yeah. of the values <laughs> was, and it sounds funny, but like one of Connects's written values was profitability. And he would have this whole speech around it where he'd say, look, you know, the the mission, the purpose of life is not to breathe, but you need to breathe in order to pursue your, your mission in life. Yeah. And so Rudy never, if he had sat me down and said, hey, let's talk about our values. See, Don was applying a rule, which I didn't even know, and rules took away an ability to make a choice. When every rule takes away a chance for someone to make a decision. And when you do that, all of a sudden it's their company, not my company. Right. Versus the, the values and the combinations of them create hundreds, if not thousands of rules, right? Exactly. I, so Gary Ridge is the CEO of WB40, friend of mine. He, If you want to believe you have good company values, you would he, actually, he just stepped down, but you would make a statement such as this. If you make a decision under one or more of the core values of our company, that is always a safe and right decision right. and the company will defend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you know what? Rules are easier, right? So people could be like, don't spend more than $25 on a business or don't do this, don't do that. 
people. But then you need a hundred. The, the pro. <laughs> this goes into a totally tangential conversation. I, let me try to not totally derail this. But I was part of a group that was doing a estate planning exercise. It was like a YPO yeah. EO thing, and and so there were some templates provided. It was sort of like leaving a letter to your children. You know, if you, and a lot of people are you know they're worth their their life insurance yeah. is worth you yeah. know the biggest thing, and. Every time that someone tried to be prescriptive, there are two strategies. Here are all the things you can spend money on or not spend money on and list, or like values-based approach. And part of this, we collected a bunch of letters from state attorneys and stuff. And it was really interesting to me as I went through it, like the prescriptive ones, like there just was no logical end place to stop. Like, here's what you can do here. It just felt like micromanaging from the grave. And usually there's ways to get around those rules, whether it's an estate yeah. letter or you're telling me not to rent a car for so like there's ways around right. it, you know? And they just felt like wrong. Right. And and here's what you want you to do. And here's the rule. And then there are these value ones that said, here's where your mom and I came from, or, you know, dad and I came from, and here's our, our belief on this. And here's our intent you know, for what we're leaving. Here's how we'd like you to do and not do. And all those just were so much better because they just clearly set like the parameters and the rules ones. Again, you could just, I I went that route initially and I was like, oh wait, I forgot this. And I forgot that. And what about that? (laughs) It's just, it's endless, right? As you were saying. So I think that was a relevant digression. Yeah, no, definitely relevant. To me, I think of values as more like guardrail. So a rule is like, ah, this negative thing where I can't even right. make a choice or I'm going to purposely- there's no why. There's no why right. to your post-it right. number thing. But, but you make a value around frugality or cash flow, profitability, whatever it is, and have a conversation. Now, all this is harder and it takes more right. time and it's a little fuzzy. But if Rudy had told me, uh, you know, really had a serious conversation about just how damn cheap he is. And then maybe brought up the, you know, waved these little scraps of paper in my face and said, you know, some people around here scribble on post-it notes, or but I, still I don't. have my original desk, your Bezos, my original, the, like the symbols, yeah. symbols yeah. of values, stories yeah. of values. He would have gotten far more compliance and engagement because now I'm making the decision about, okay, I heard you, Rudy, but I really do need these post-it notes for this reason. Or, okay, I, I can buy off of that. I want to be a good soldier. I want to be a good team member. I want to, I want to, you know, live that value. So, I mean, <laughs> the lesson started as a negative at yeah. Conexa, but then it grew and, you know, I, I've never had really rules in my company. And this is the difference between real values and Dilbert like ones that are in the lobby that no one knows what they are or why they're lived or yeah. have well, any relevance. Yeah. I, I just was listening. I'm, you know, I've got a lot of problems with, um, Facebook and Zuckerberg and stuff. Having said that, really respect the crazy, you know, scale at which he's built things and was listening to him on a podcast just recently. And I thought he said something interesting about values. He said, look, instead of those values that are like four words, everybody would agree with that you stick on your, your wall integrity or whatever. He's like, a value will have power if a normal person could actually disagree with it. And so you know, the classic Facebook right, like integrity values. is not, is not right. Yeah. Like who's going to say no, that, that, that's the pay to play variables, right? You wouldn't hire someone who's unintegral, but, uh, but it should be something that's unique about your business. Right. He, in the classic Facebook one, at least in the early days was move fast and break things, you know? And he explained like what that meant was, and not everyone is like that. Right. And not everyone's like yeah. that. He's like, we are going to tolerate bugs. We're going to let people, you know, yeah. take the risk of let people, 
put perfectionist code out need, need not apply. Right. Yeah. Perfectionist, high conscientious like me need not yeah. apply. And, and in other companies, they'd be like, no, we're, our, our stuff is so valuable or whatever. Like it has to be right when we release it. So I, I think that's another powerful thing. If your values are so milk toast, you know, watery, yeah. like that, just, oh, sure. Everybody agrees. You've got to be honest. We have to have customer service. Well, that doesn't really mean a lot. You got to really talk about them and bring them to life. You shared a great story where I think it exemplified this talking about your teenage daughter or daughter's driving for the first time in curfew, which I, can you share that? Cause I think it's a great example for people who are leaders and parents and, 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 you know, same strategies across both. Yeah. I've, I've got three kids. I'm almost an empty nester. And so when these stories come up, of course, my kids always like to tease me about telling stories from many yeah. years ago, but um, people are often surprised. And I usually get some hate email back when I say, you know, I'm not a perfect parent, but, you know, raised three kids who are doing really well, healthy and all that. And I've really never had rules in the house. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty common to have something like a curfew, as an example, never had curfews. And, but it didn't mean they could do whatever they wanted. And so, you know, the story I often tell would be quite often my daughters would say, you know, it's the weekend and they're in high school. They'll say, hey, we're going out tonight. And I'd say, okay, you know, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What time are you coming home? And they would usually say something like 11-ish or something. And what's important about this story, Bob, I won't belabor it, but yeah. I grew up in a household where my dad had a curfew and I had rebellious older teenage sisters. Yeah. And it would be like, he would World, say 10 World PM. Two, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. if it's 10 minutes before curfew, my dad is not focused on TV anymore. He's up and he's pacing and yeah. he's staring at that clock waiting for them to violate his curfew. And then they walk in two minutes after the hour. He harasses them. They say, oh, look, uh, my watch says it's it. No, you just turned your watch. Now it's a whole trust and lying and like negative energy. Right. And like, what? So who to did, our who? Point before, so you grew up being like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wasn't even conscious, but like yeah. <laughs> I saw like this is this is not cool. Parents are not going to win, right? Yeah. Like the, your kids are going to, like anybody, the rules, there's ways to, to violate them. So with my kids, they would come up with a time and whether they got home, if they said 11, whether it was, you know, 1050 or 1105 or whatever, it was okay. It wasn't about the minute. It was about an expectation and an agreement, you know, that they pretty much hit. And, the, and then <laughs> the big thing was, was like prom night, you know, and they're like, dad, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to prom. And everybody's going to go to a house party after the prom. We're not going to drink a drive. No one's going to be drinking and driving. But how late can we stay out? They asked me. Yeah. And so it would have been easy. And I'm thinking, all right, you know, they're they're 17, almost 18 years old. It's prom night. I probably would have said, like, all right, we'll be home by two or something. Like if I if if I had given that number. Yeah. And instead, I just said, listen you know how much I love you guys. You know how much I trust you guys, but I am not going to be able to sleep until you guys are home safe, especially on prom night. Other people are out driving. It's late and all that. So just know that I'm going to be up waiting for you. How late, but I get it. It's probably special. You can stay out late. Like what, what's the right time for you? And I can't remember exactly, but they said something like, do you think we can stay out till one? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, all right, one o'clock it is, you know, like I would have given them a far later time than they gave themselves. Yeah but it was a conversation and they right. it wasn't an arbitrary rule. Like no, again, I, that is probably the answer for most parents, but they just don't communicate that. Right. right. Like it's right. just, it sounds like some crazy thing. I mean, I, yeah, we don't like falling asleep before our 
18 year old daughter gets home. Like right. I, it's very jarring. So that, that is, and unfortunately we're getting old and we fall asleep earlier and earlier. So she's going one direction. We're, we're going another, the supply demand curve is not meeting. I've right lived pleasure. it, my friend. I'm living yeah. it now. <laughs> so what are your, I, I know you're someone who's a lifelong learner. Like what are your, some of your favorite ways to, to find and absorb new knowledge about leadership? Well, it, it's interesting, Bob, because again, I'm sure you can relate to this. Like, there's a hundred new leadership books out every year, probably more. A lot of them are not original concepts or actually, you know, that helpful. So it's less to me about sort of the ongoing thing. Like I like I like the research driven stuff, whether it's my own or yeah. coming from McKinsey or somewhere else. I tend to you know, either really research like or practitioner. If you're neither of those things, then I'm not clear. That, who that's you exactly are, so. Right? The practitioner's <laughs> the other side because. Like where I love right now. So I'm all about, you know, scaling leadership. So every week I'm interviewing directors of leadership development at different companies. How are you training your leaders? How are you doing it? Yeah. And sure, I hear a lot of the same stuff, but also someone will come up with a good idea or a new challenge that they're facing. And so it's talking to the practitioners. And, you know, we <laughs> there's a lot of popular leadership gurus out there that um, that a lot of people follow or pay a lot of money, you know, to, to get to their programs. But if they're not doing original research or if they themselves didn't lead a pretty big company that had to deal with real world issues, I mean, you know, they might be entertaining. They might do a good, a better job than others at telling leadership stories. But like, I don't get a lot out of that. If anything, I think a lot of them mislead, you know, the, the followers out there. So, you know, I just try to follow that research, stay close to the people doing leadership development and just learn myself. I mean, I'm always, you know, I'm always screwing stuff up. So just trying to learn from my mistakes. Well, that's a good segue into our last question. I always say this is multivariant. So it could be singular or repeated and personal or professional. But what's a mistake that you've made in your life or career that you've learned the most from? I, I mean, they're routine, they're small, they're big, they're all over the place. Um, I At work, I'm, I'm very humble in that often I think something's a horrible idea, but I let my team go forward with it. It turns out to be a great idea. Um, I'll go back to though some core things, again, that affects personal and professional. You know, I mentioned, like, I, I had this thought to, like, I need to be independently wealthy, you know, so the scary man doesn't take my house away. So for a long time, it was very achievement motivated. And it's embarrassing now. It really wasn't about making the world a better place. It was about <laughs> making Kevin feel more financially secure. And I'd sold, I don't know, whatever number of company was, I was like 40 years old. And it was, it was an actual thing where I woke up probably at 10 in the morning on a Wednesday and thought like, why should I get out of bed right now? Like, I really didn't have a reason. Kids were off to school. Now, what am I going to do? Right. And for whatever reason, and like Brene Brown, we're talking about, you know, I like her work. I realized that almost in an, in an epiphany that the achievement focus was really about external validation, you know, low self-worth internally. I'm trying to get external validation. Give me another Inc. 500 award. Give me another exit. Give me another whatever award. Give me applause in front of keynote speaker audience. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things by themselves, but I wasn't getting them for the right reasons. And my life really switched. And I took 10 years off in between companies. That's when I started doing more writing and research and, and nonprofit work. And um, for too long, 
I was doing things for the wrong reason. It was for the external validation. What's dangerous is once you realize that external validation means nothing because you can get those things right. and you still feel weak inside, still feel less than inside. But until you realize that you're chasing it. And once you realize it, it's like, well, why do I get out of bed? Why should I start another company? Why should I write another book? And everybody's going to have to find their own answer. Usually it comes back to, and for me, you know, it's about giving back. It's about trying to help others. And it's really until you sincerely get to that next level of service, like that's when all of a sudden the energy magnifies and your superpowers hit. But I mean, I wasted the first 40 years of my life with the wrong why, yeah. you know, I'm 55. Wrong, so I'm, me wrong measuring stick. Yeah, wrong measuring stick. Yeah. That's the big mistake. Yeah, no, I think that's very common. So I, I appreciate you you sharing that. I think a lot of people spend a lot of pain and energy climbing a mountain. They get to the top and they're like, I didn't want to climb this mountain. Society <laughs> or parents or someone else right. pushed me up this mountain, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, well, Kevin, how can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, the, um, the best thing they could do is if they visit leadx.org, L-E-A-D-X.org, uh, they can get information about our leadership development app and it's free. You can just search for LeadX on your favorite app store and it's got personality assessments for self-awareness. It's got book summaries. It's got micro learning videos. It's all free, 100% free and um, get behavioral nudges, micro coaching. It's like having an executive coach in your pocket. And um, so download the app, shoot me an email, kevin at leadx.org. I love meeting new people and uh, I'm on social media as well. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks for sharing your story with us. You've done uh, a lot to share the knowledge and expertise you gained from your experiences in leadership with others. I know you're, you're making a difference for a future generation of leaders. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Kevin and his books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.